2: Hello and welcome to UK Film Review Podcast. I'm Lucy and I'm your host for this episode and I'm joined by um, Joyce and Brian who are also UK Film Reviewers. How are you guys today?
3: Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Great
4: to Brilliant. be here.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you Joyce?
4: Yeah, good, good. Lovely to join you guys. It's it's always good when, yeah. when we uh, sit down to chat. So, yeah, hi everyone. Exactly.
2: Looking forward to this discussion as well. So, This episode is in honour of the 80th anniversary of Citizen Kane, that film that tops every BFI list of best films ever, Um, and we will be discussing Citizen Kane and also films from the 1940s. We'll look at genres and key films from that era, and we'll end with some of our favourites as well. So let's start with discussing Citizen Kane. For the uninitiated, Citizen Kane follows a man, Charles Foster Kane, on his deathbed as he mutters the words "Rosebud." This sends an absolute sensation through the world and journalism at large because he was a massive newspaper newspaper chief, and he also um, was a kind of politician. What was Rosebud? Who was Rosebud? They have no idea, and they try and figure it out through the memories of every other person that he knew. Um, it's an absolutely great and seminal work and it's still remembered and treasured, you know, 80 years after it's being filmed. Um, so what are your thoughts on Citizen Kane, Joyce?
4: Um, I think it's it's a great, great film and for quite a few reasons. Um, I think... Um uh, mainly, uh, the main one would be the script. I think it's wonderfully scripted. It's not, I don't think, an easy um, subject matter to script and sort of um, in a way that will m- make the audience come along. Um, so I think it's very, very intelligently scripted. Mm, um, yeah. Visually, it's um, incredibly rich. Um, incredibly, it's got some incredibly nice, Shots I'm thinking of the um the shot of the lady coming in in, in the kind of the first scene in the um, you know the slow the snow globe, the kind of reflection yeah. shot, yeah. um that's just wonderful. Um, and then I'm thinking of the scene where um the first scene recounting sort of uh Citizen Kane's childhood where they're discussing his education and the shot sort of widens and he uh, he's playing outside in the snow, mm. and that ends up being a film within a film almost yeah. yeah Um. so I think that's just incredibly there's just something ethereal about it there's something timeless um so visually it's incredible um thematically as well very very deep film very uh quite political quite sociological so yeah um lots lots to lots to see there it's a, yeah it's great
2: I I really agree with you there um I think the fil- the scenes inside his absolutely insane um palace are amazing because they're so long and they look like he's the loneliest man in the world and that's that's just brilliant and thematically you're right it is such a rich film about kind of politics and power and, and loneliness as well but also love too and kind of failing to find that love as well yeah um yeah i just think it yeah <laughs> Um, Brian, what are your thoughts on Citizen
3: Kane? I think it's an amazing film. It's it's a work of art, I think, really. And bear in mind that it's 80 years old, you know, and it still looks so fresh. And one thing that struck me about the film when I rewatched it was how good the quality of the prints are. You know, for a film that's that age... We've been very fortunate to be able to preserve a film with that kind of quality. You compare it to some other films from, from the same same period, you'll get a lot of hiss and a lot of playback and the fuzzy pictures. But it's crystal clear. It makes it look even, even fresher than it already is. I think what, what uh, fascinates me about Orson Welles and Citizen Kane and the machinations that went on off, off screen as well as on, Mm. made it a, a much more powerful portrayal because I, I think Orson um, Wells' experiences in the politics of Hollywood fed into this character that he played on screen. And it ticks all the boxes. It's beautifully acted. Visually, it's stunning. The way he, he uses light and shade to frame every single shot is incredible. Yes. And mm. also, though, the, the character of Charlie Kane himself... I think it is in some ways a prophecy of the characters that we came to appreciate in real life. Here we've got um, a powerful, egotistical character who can manipulate public opinion, influence politicians because of his control of the press. And that is a bit like Rupert Murdoch, Robert Maxwell. So there's something quite prophetic about that type of character because it's somebody we actually came to know for real. It's an exaggeration, but we know that you can make a point by exaggerating, and that's what Orson Welles did. Uh, but wasn't Orson Welles amazing in the role, though? Incredible voice. I wish I sounded like yes. him.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly.
3: An amazing voice, and also let's not forget jo- uh, Joseph Cotton as well in a supporting role as his friend and confidant, who mm. was also very effect- effective in when they were flashing back and forwards. And Joseph Cotton's character was in the nursing home wearing dark glasses initially. That had great kind of atmosphere and it crackled with tension when he said, oh, he said, Charlie Kane, I was his only friend. He didn't have any friends at all. Maybe we weren't friends at all. And it's, it's him sort of kind of pinning down the character more precisely because they, they tell it in flashback. And I sometimes struggle with flashbacks because you're never quite sure where you are, but you're never yeah, uncertain yes. in this film. Yeah. And the, they flash back and forth. Yeah, but you know exactly where you are. You kind of know. You know you know where you are because it's so well shot. Mm.
4: Yeah, I'll, and so that's um yeah, and that's a good point because it's that goes into this um you know it's about how well scripted it is. But I guess shout out to the editing as well, right? In that yeah. film is yeah.
3: I think very rarely do you, do you get films that that. Almost perfect. I mean, I don't think there's any, anything is perfect, but you, you can get 90, 90% of the way there. And this film really ticks all the boxes. They get it all just right. It's spot on. But is that more about Awesome um, Wells finally getting in his own way? Because there was always a power struggle between Awesome Wells and Hollywood generally. You always struggle to get films made. And I think that's symptomatic of the struggle that you have. But for once, allowed him to do what he wanted to do and that was the result you got and they were just scared of him they were scared of Orson Welles they were scared of of his talent and his ability and his presence and I I think as I say the exciting uh the real excitement it was also off screen as well it's that great dynamic between facts and fiction Mm, yeah
2: I'm great really sorry
3: um
4: yeah no that's okay I, w- I was just gonna say um that's a really good point brian i think and i would also mention his his sort of um also sort of drive and intelligence because it's not mm. it's definitely not a commercial film that hollywood would have loved no. you know as we were saying it's very political very witty very kind of um incisive so
3: yeah it... I, I think you're right there joyce i think in 1942 it would have been seen as quite dangerous in a way mm-hmm. quite yeah quite divisive because anyone watching it at the time could have pointed to any number of public figures that he was having a dig at in, in some shape or form so it's kind of threatening the status quo in, in so many ways but isn't that what filmmaking is all about it's about yeah,
2: exactly.
4: I just think. playing yeah.
2: on that edge of yeah am i going to offend people who are backing this film as well yeah. Um, I was really fascinated by your point that you brought up about him really fighting with Hollywood. And I haven't read a lot about Ors- Orson Welles. So I'm just wondering if you could maybe kind of expand on that more or, or talk about a particular event or. Well, I event. think,
3: yeah, I think the, the source of, the source of um, his troubles with the Hollywood bigwigs was, was financing and budgets. You know, he, few. I'm not sure whether you're aware, but he, he, he made one of his first big splashes with a radio broadcast of War of the Worlds. Yeah,
5: oh yeah,
3: and it, yeah. And it, and it was so influential, it's so realistic that legend has it that people took their own lives because they thought they were being invaded by
2: oh my gosh, yeah,
3: creatures from outer space. So I think <laughs> they they feared they feared the power that you had, the control you had. You
0: mm-hmm.
3: had this tremendous demeanor, and it's whether it's jealousy, fear, suspicion. The fact that he was asking too much, he wanted too much control. And really, if you look at the 1940s in general, as as wonderful a time it was for filmmaking, the studios had control. They were in charge. Yes,
2: definitely they hired, the studio system as well.
3: Yeah, they hired and fired, and they didn't like someone like Orson Welles, who, again, hmm. were, seemed to be years ahead of his time. But it, it would always come back to money and control, power. Yeah. Money is power. It's the old cliche, isn't it? And that was, I think, central to, to the, the struggles he had with the Hollywood bigwigs, but it, it's not something that you could imagine would have been done because, the, the you know, the likes of, you know, uh, Sam Goldwyn and David Selznick and all these influential figures in Hollywood at the time would have said, right, we're in charge. You do, do what we tell you to do. But he turned it around and they said, well, you're just an actor. We're, no, I'm not just an actor. I'm an artist, I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm an actor. And that scared the living daylights out of them, I think, at the time.
4: He had a background in theatre, didn't he, as well?
3: He did, yeah. Uh, but doesn't it show, though, I think? Because mm-hmm. if you look at the, um, the presence that he, that he projects on screen, can't you tell that he's learnt his trade on, on right. stage? Yes. And not all actors do that, necessarily. But you could tell that where his training's come from,
2: mm-hmm. how he
3: learnt to project, and how he, he, he learnt to impose himself. And but I, he's I
2: never think overtly. It's... Sorry, I oh, <laughs> you. Sorry, go on. Um, He's never overtly theatrical, is he? He's not. You don't think, no. oh, he's just been on stage and now he's no. he's not particularly learnt the transition well. Um, it, Charles came. He like a real person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very naturalistic. Very,
3: very naturalistic. Um, you know, one the key to to acting really is to make the character you're playing believable. Mm-hmm. Can you make people believe in this character? There's this. this If they're fictitious, would you believe this character is real? And you would with Citizen Kane. You you think, I recognise parts of him, and you think, he seems real. There is a natural element there. And he's not overdoing it. He's not overacting. He's just projecting. And I think there's a difference, there, and that's what he does very Mm -hmm.
2: well Mm -hmm. in Citizen Kane. I think there's such a great thing about Citizen Kane in, you know, Charles Kane himself is there's so many contradictions to his character. He has this massive ego and really kind of desires to own all the newspapers and all the radio stations in America, mm. and yeah. then later go into politics. It seems that that's all he wants, but reputedly, mm. and I'm not going to spoil the ending because I do think, you know, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, there shouldn't be a mm. reason for you to stop listening. Um, that's right. Yeah. But he's always like kind of desperate for love. And you see this in like his, his two marriages. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's, he's trying to conform, well, not conform, but to shape his wives, but not for his benefit or so he thinks, but to show his love. But it's kind of like, he's desperate for attention and for love, but also he's the most powerful man in the world. And it's this really interesting dynamic that even now You don't particularly see, even though it's kind of influenced so many other films, and it's been such a massive film in its own right in kind of film history.
3: I I think what's interesting about the character, again, this feeds into the character being natural and believable, is that what happens to him as a boy, what his parents did with him, they, Mm. they said they were doing it for his own good, but to be removed from from the family home like that in the way he was, it kind of fed into his future life. And it's true enough that your experiences as a a child can inform the way you behave as an adult. And that's Mm -hmm. something else that's quite real. And it makes him more human and you do feel for him. I mean, you could say he's an egomaniac. Mm -hmm.
5: Um,
3: You know, he's narcissistic, you know, in love with his own image, but you do sympathize with him as well. And that's attributes how well we can make the character work again it's yeah. making you believe in that character
2: i mean um i consider him to be an egomaniac but i also consider him to be strangely deeply deeply lonely in a yeah. way almost only the very rich and powerful are because they can't fundamentally relate to anybody else because no one else has that level of wealth or power which yeah. is really fascinating um,
3: it, yeah it, it, yeah it is I think I think wealth can be a very lonely place I mean if you look for example I mean look at Howard Hughes who was a film producer who just went quietly mad because he was so wealthy mm-hmm. what do you do with all this wealth is it, is it going to make you happy and again it's an old cliche isn't it but it's true that's why it's a cliche. That's what comes out there. That money is never going to make him truly happy. You'll never find peace of mind.
5: Mm-hmm. And again, Not you like do feel some statues. sympathy.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it's an amazing film. and I, I think really awesome. Well, should should have built on that a lot more. You know, he he tended to sort of dip in and out of Hollywood after that because of that yeah. because of that issue that he mm-hmm. had with with the money money, you know, the, the people that held the purse strings in Hollywood.
4: I think there's a very interesting bit in the film and this might be to do with Wells' own experience where um Charlie Kane he gets told, you know, you never invest, you just buy and you buy and you buy and you buy. And I think um you know it's the kind of money focus there. But also I feel we, I, I feel like it relates to what you guys were saying about loneliness. You know, when there's when there's no limit to what you can get or do or ask for it's sort of like being in the open ocean you know you, you don't know where to you don't know where to go you don't know what's there what isn't there um and i think it's significant it's it's really really fitting and i, I i've only kind of made the connection as we've been speaking because the film begins with a quote from um samuel taylor Coleridge's poem Kubla khan and that poem's about um what's real and what isn't real and your own perception of what you're able to build and how that can, how that usually turns on you, yeah. um, or at least doesn't give you, um, all of what you thought it would give you or, or even at all, uh, really. And, yeah. um, yeah, that, that poem was, uh, sort of written under the influence, you know, yeah. it's, Coleridge it's, it's days. but, yeah. but still, I think, um, Again, brilliant writing to be thinking of that and just throw it in there. Um,
3: it, uh, that's quite right, I agree. It's a very intelligent film, but I, I can remember watching the film when I was relatively young. I might have watched it when I was maybe 12 or 13 yeah. and appreciated it in a different way then. But it's the sort of film you only really appreciate when you get older, I mm-hmm. think, when you become an adult. Then you see, you recognise the themes that are at play there. You recognise the complexities of Kane as a character. And you, 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 you draw those conclusions a lot more readily as an adult. And I think it's that kind of film. You appreciate it when you gain some maturity yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I think it's that kind of film as well. It's, it's pretty much a film for grown-ups, I think. Not that it's particularly explicit or violent, but it's, it's a film that makes you think. It's a film that, that, that wants you to understand the depth of this character more. And you can't do that when you're younger. No, you can't.
4: Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot that won't get through to you, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely,
2: yeah. Yeah. And you are right. Some of the best films age age like fine wine or something. They just get Mm -hmm. so much better when you return to them at an older date, when you're kind of a bit older and you're like, wow, this has completely changed my perception of how I saw this film. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. And actually... I only saw Citizen Kane this week.
3: <laughs> no, yes. really?
2: Yes, um, and I do think in part because I had been very intimidated by it being a very good film, and I knew because I think it is either number one or number two on the BFI film list of kind of best, wow. films. and it's it's either top film or second only to Vertigo by um, Alfred Hitchcock. And I had been very intimidated that I wouldn't like it.
3: Do you, do you know what I think it is sometimes, uh, Lucy, is that I think for a, when a film that's that's heralded it in such a way that this is the greatest film ever made. You've got to watch it. Hmm. Does it not put you off in some ways where something's been hyped up so much you think, oh, no, no, no.
2: Oh, greatly, greatly.
3: I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. No, no, no. It can't be that good. And I think really when... When you you feel something's hyped up so much,
2: yeah,
4: it that, almost drives you away.
3: Yeah, it yeah. drives you away for a while. But when you finally sit down and see it, you think, "Oh yeah, they were right." <laughs> yeah, they were right. Most people at
2: BFI, they got it.
3: <laughs> yeah, I know. So um, yeah, I, I see that totally. Yeah,
2: Completely. so I've been kind Ed of standard. not particularly put off, but I need to what Thinking, I need to watch it when I'm in a really kind of good mood to get really deep into film. Um I was scared of not liking it because I can watch a lot of rubbishy forties melodramas and it won't have that kind of critical presence behind it. So if I do or don't like it, it really is my own opinion that I'm affecting or whatever. Um so
3: I think yeah. I think something else at play there though. When when you look at a film like that, you've not seen it, you think you almost sort of feel under pressure to think oh, everyone likes this film. Yeah. Everyone admire it. I, I hope yeah. I get the same kick from it when I see it.
2: Yeah, I hope I understand why they all like yeah. it.
3: Yeah. And you think if I don't, oh no, what am I missing somewhere? Yeah. It's it's that kind of thing, isn't it?
2: And yeah. kind of going off on that, um, and obviously I have been impacted very um not long after. I mean, I only saw it two days ago, so my Citizen Kane before and after has not been yeah. long <laughs> in love my life. Um, right. And I had miraculously avoided hearing about the ending, which I don't know how I did that. I don't know how it happened, but I pretty much went in spoiler-free, which I'm not sure if that will ever happen again <laughs> with an old, classic film.
3: Yeah, but it's very difficult to avoid Uh, not learning what happens in a film Mm. because there are so many places you can look now. You can just flick a switch, go online and you can see a spoiler. You can go onto IMDB or or any number of websites, Wikipedia. Mm. And it will give you a synopsis and a breakdown And yeah. now it's too tempting to look at it and think oh i'll just it's it's like reading a book and just flicking through to the last two or three pages isn't it I think, i'll see what this what this solution is what the end was it's too easy now
2: it's, it's so some... easy to stumble on kind of 60 80 year old secrets but it's also a lot in film magazines in general um, they will assume that because you're a cinephile that you would have seen these key endings and they'll reference them in reviews or pieces that don't particularly relate to yeah. whatever film. So it's it's very easy to kind of stumble upon the endings and everything. And I'm yeah. not so um, upset by spoilers, but I do think certain things are great if you go into it completely blind. And Citizen Kane is one of those things
3: well i think we need to allow films to genuinely surprise us if they can yeah right so yeah. If, if you can stay away from all the spoilers not just with, with that particular film or the films we're discussing but for any film in general right you know look at the number i mean what do we look at what we do we write film reviews right all right in our reviews we're not going to necessarily expose the the solution right but because there's all yeah, that material exactly. there you can learn too much about something before you see it but mm-hmm. the idea of reviewing is to give people an idea of what it's like would they like to see it and
5: mm-hmm.
3: i think as film reviewers we we have to sort of carry that principle forward and say right let's give them enough to make them curious but not yeah. so much that they're just going to say oh I'll, I'll i'll go for a spoiler and see what happens
2: yeah Yeah, exactly you want to feed the curiosity but not give everything away
3: exactly yeah
2: there's a few films that's come out recently that I'm really interested in and I'm just like Uh don't read all the reviews don't do it (laughs) you're not that interested
4: yeah (laughs) Yeah, just watch it first now and I think Citizen Kane is it's such a journey as well I mean it, it you know it kind of takes you through so much um, be, it would be slightly annoying to know the end because it is quite mysterious. So
2: Yeah, yeah. And mm. it just takes so many twists and turns to get to that point and there's not really many suggestions to indicate where the ending is going. Yeah. Um, it could go into a variety of different kind of warrens or paths, but until you've seen it all, and then it fully makes sense. You can just be like, oh, right. Yeah. That's there's, where it ended up, you know. Mm.
4: There's no foreshadowing, yeah.
2: No. Well, maybe a bit, but nothing like really heavy and put on and kind mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. this will happen. And if you don't see it happening, then you're an idiot kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. there's nothing so strong. And because he's such a multi-layered, intense, um, well-written character, it could be a, many things, um, you know, being this answer to Rosebud, but it's just so masterfully done. And I was blown away when I saw it. I was like, "Wow, yeah, I did, I did put the best or last kind of." Mm-hmm.
3: So, um, so Lucy, now you can see why so much fuss has been made about the film. Why it's put it's put up there. It's at the top of almost every. Every film list of you know, every bucket list, every sort of list of films that you must see before XYZ. Yeah. You can see why, can't you? Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: It's got a massive kind of like impact and I think it really did shatter kind of pre nineteen forties films and post nineteen forties films. I was almost watching it and see thinking some of these shots I've seen in something like Ingmar Bergman's persona, um, which, you know, is filmed maybe 25 years later, but it felt so, so fresh. And I was just wondering if you guys had any kind of thoughts about how you can see Citizen Kane in other films that are reflected nowadays. Brian, do you have any particular thoughts on that?
3: Um, I think you, you see elements of yeah. Citizen Kane in a lot of modern filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I, I think one that springs to mind, because because I mentioned Howard Hughes earlier on, uh, The Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh-huh. Now, I think there's, there's kind of like a parallel there where you have this extremely sort of enigmatic, charismatic character that's slightly eccentric who... who who gets obsessed with who he is and his own image and also the money that he has at his disposal. Um, That's very Citizen Kane, I think. Um, But I think, again, that's kind of plugging into something quite evident because I think Howard Hughes is very similar to Citizen Kane. And in The Aviator that starred Leonardo DiCaprio, I think that's a good reading of, of where you can see the influence of, Orson Wells as a filmmaker, so that's one that springs to mind. Mm. But I think, like like any influential film, you see it in in any number of modern fi- films yeah. that are made.
2: You but see it in it's pops very, and, pops it, and all of that.
3: Yeah, it's very subtle. I think that um, the way it, it can influence other filmmakers. Um, the uh, the scene in Citizen Kane where um, the guy goes in to read. Um, I think it was the Last Word in Testament where he walks in and a big door creaks open, then it creaks shut, and you can see the shade altering uh, as it opens and closes.
0: Yeah. And I,
3: I think that that is something that people like Scorsese have, have used. But this yeah. Scott have used that that use I was of shadow. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah, yeah,
3: that use of sh- of light and shadow in the way that if you move a larger object like a door, you just simply open and close it, you create. A different series of shades and it's all mm. visuals and
0: yeah. it's quite
3: subtle but you'll see and that is something that i don't think would have you would have seen in citizen you know before citizen came was made but yeah. you know modern, modern filmmakers now the likes of spielberg scorsese coppola whoever you care to name ridley scott alan parker you know
5: yeah
3: any modern filmmaker would say yes i'm influenced by um the 1940s they would yeah. always have that as a reference point but I think it's very subtle and I think you pick you you notice it and you pick it up but yeah it's there I think it's definitely yeah. there
2: um Joyce do you have any kind of thoughts on on the impact I, I think you were bursting to talk about Scorsese or yeah oh I think um
4: because I was trying to I was I was uh, listening to Brian and then um uh, trying to think about uh, a sort of certain film that would uh come to mind I think Um, and the director that came to mind was Scorsese because Mm. so uh, for me it's um, the character development as well so Scorsese is very I feel quite very very good for that Um, Mm. so that kind of biopic sort of take on things Um, so yes he immediately came to mind and also I think um, I mean I guess it's debatable but the the pacing of the film isn't it quite Modern,
2: it feels very uh, modern, which yeah, is helpful, yeah. not
3: very specific. Yeah. <laughs> um... you, you see, I think that's right, though, Joyce. It, it does have a very modern feel. I mean, yeah. what I keep, what nags at like the back of my mind, this film's 80 years old, mm. but it feels new. It feels like it's fresh out of the tin. And you think, like, I feel like I've just seen this. And that mm-hmm. could be the influence that that film's had on, on the films that have followed, the films that we see today. They're influenced by... Films like Citizen Kane, well, but they it does a similar feel a
2: pace.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And also, I think that it doesn't date because it's it starts with with Charlie Kane when he was. I don't know. It flashes back and forwards, but at one point it's eighteen seventy-one, and the character died in nineteen forty or whenever it was. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a period piece. It it doesn't date because it's a period drama, so it will never date in that way. You know, it's not like it's a, a contemporary piece mm. relating a story in the present. It's not like that because it starts back in the 1870s when uh, when he was a, a, a boy, when he was 10 years old. So mm-hmm. I, I think it, so it doesn't date. It, you know, that's another another reason why it seems so new and so fresh. Yeah,
2: and, and also um, it doesn't really have so many of the identifiers of a a 1940s film, I was thinking of something maybe like The Philadelphia Story, which is incredibly kind of quick-witted and fast, and they're always having very kind of strong transatlantic accents with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, that that immediately, as soon as you see The Philadelphia Story, you're like, that is a 1940s film, but you can watch Citizen Kane and not yeah. have that impression of the era yeah you can kind of you know it's set in 1941 right. yeah. but it's not an overwhelming thought you have while you're watching it which is quite quite interesting yeah. actually
3: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah um but it's interesting though you mentioned the philadelphia story though um because that uh, you know carrie grant for example you mentioned the transatlantic accents you know that Amazing accent he had was lo- sort of lost somewhere over the over the Atlantic, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and, uh, I mean, he
2: was originally from Bristol, I think.
3: I know that's right. Yeah, he was. Yeah, oh wow, he was born born in Bristol. But you know, I'm just just wondering though, I'm just going off of a bit of a tangent for no, a moment. If that's all right with you? Um, but somebody like Cary Grant, who was incredibly charismatic, charming, great screen presence, an amazing accent, amazing voice. Do we think there's anyone like Cary Grant? making films today is there an actor around today that's anything like harry grant for example
2: i really don't think i think Cary grant is in a league of his own even now Um, i think so i love all of the stuff that he's in i'm always just thinking shall i watch a Cary grant movie i mean maybe his kind of um the the next person to kind of inherit that Cary Grant kind of persona might have been Rock Hudson, but that ah, was in the right. 60s yeah. and 60s, you know, with, yeah. with things like Giant and uh, yeah. magnificent Obsession, which I adore. I think <laughs> it's I th- great film.
3: I, th- I think that's, um, that's uh, a good one. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you who I was thinking of, George Clooney. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, actually, yeah. He I yeah. yeah, he doesn't quite have the funny falling aboutness, but then neither does Rock Hudson. But you're right; he does have that quality of leading man yeah. charisma.
3: It's, yeah, you see, that's the um, that's the thing, though, isn't it? Again, it's it's coming back to not only films are inf- films that are made narrow influenced by what happened back then, but you you have actors that are styled in the same way.
4: Yeah. Yeah, totally. The hair. (laughs) hair. (laughs) Yes, definitely.
2: So, if we're kind of thinking about the 1940s, and we've talked a lot about Citizen Kane and how kind of great and um, kind of absolutely like a divisive bomb within the 1940s as a before and after in kind of film history. Mm can we kind of think of like, well, it is kind of this, a lot of kind of historical impact with the war going on, but also the Hayes Code, which in the 1930s um, came about and really did kind of instruct Hollywood filmmakers on what they could and could not make. So you've got kind of, you can't have um, films with um, people who are, and a couple who are, one is black and one is white, you can't do that. Mm. You can't have um, religious men or religious kind of vicars um, shown in a bad light. And it's absolutely ingenious the ways that people kind of try to overcome the Hayes Code and try to kind of um, manage it and everything. So I just think that's quite an interesting kind of way to look at 40s film in general with that kind of thing in mind that there was a lot of internal kind of fighting over what, the, what was allowed and what wasn't.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's a very good point. The Hayes Club was, was, very, um, was very stringent and was very dictatorial in many ways. Uh, but mm. I think it's interesting the way directors and screenwriters found a way around it. Um, I mean, we touched on film noir earlier on um, The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart Laura mm-hmm. and Lauren Bacall um, they 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 kind of champion the film for so many on so many levels one it's a great film to start with you know uh, it's directed by Howard Hawks based on a novel by um, Raymond Chandler and you've got Bacall and Bogart what more could you ask for really mm. but there was lots of they glory in the innu- innuendo between Bacall and Bogart right? Yeah. which which kind of skipped around that kind of edged around the haze Code, because there was lots of, there was there sort the, of by today's standards it was very very tame right mm. but there was dialogue between the two characters between Bukul and Bogart talking about horses in a race using lots of analogies that could have a sexual connotation right now we wouldn't take any notice of it but I think they cleverly got around it because if you if you would put it in front of an audience that was growing up enough and intelligent enough to realise what they were talking about, mm-hmm. and I watched The Big Sleep again the other day because it's one of my one of my favourite Fawcett's films, but there are some really funny,
5: mm.
3: cheeky lines in The Big Sleep that you might not notice if you if you see it the first time you won't you won't notice it, but there are lines, funny lines that Bogart was delivering. And he understood the comic timing in that line. And it was funny because it was saucy and it was cheeky and it was, it was kind of, it was kind of, um, clawing away at the haze coat. He's saying, we're going to have a go back. We're going to be a bit naughty here. And there was one particular line that just absolutely cracked me up and I never realized it until I saw it again the other day, but, um, uh, Carmen Stepwood, the the sister of Vivian, who's played by Lauren Bacall, um, is a very flirtatious character, and she co- crops up in conversation where Humphrey Bogart was playing Marlowe, and. He, he said, "Oh, I know who you're talking about." She was the one who tried to sit in my lap when I was standing up, and the way he delivered it, I, th- I thought it's brilliant. i never noticed it before, but Bogart understood it could be a funny line if you delivered it right.
5: Yeah. And
3: th- that was just one of the ways where they kind of they chipped away at the Hays coat, and that if you look for it, it's there. Mm.
5: Uh-huh. But it, but I it
3: was a, it was a big, um, sorry, it was way. a big, it was a big sort of um, restriction, though, on filmmakers at yeah. the time.
2: I do think it's fascinating and maybe this is partly why I love 40s films so much as well is that it's that delicate balance between script writing and not having your film made. And one of my favourite um, 40s directors and 30s directors, actually, he's he was directing throughout is Ernst Lubitsch because he had something called the Lubitsch touch, which was kind of the nickname that everybody gave his films because he could get away with so much sexual innuendo within his romantic comedies um, because it would just be so delicately done that it would pass under the noses of the censors. Um, And to be honest, his films are still very funny today, but I really do enjoy watching films and thinking, okay, so they had this massive restriction put on them, but they can still make comments about you know, sexuality, about kind of even, you know, religion and aspects which were really quite heavily restricted by the Hays Code, which I do think is, is very kind of intriguing and, and interesting. Um, we touched on film noir with the big sleep and everything, and um, I suppose, Brian, it is one of your favourite genres, but Joyce, do you have any um, kind of experience watching film noir or are you familiar with 40s film noir
4: um, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on it, no. So I'll 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 let you guys take the lead for this one. <laughs> so so our fine. audience isn't isn't, you know, uh, well um... sold anything that's not quite right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but do you have any kind of um like assumptions about it? Because I think even if you haven't seen a film noir, you think all oh, the lighting, the femme fatale and, and things like that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think the kind of, uh, yeah, the the light and shadow uh, <laughs> um, kind of, uh, what would you call it? Cinemat- style? Cinematography Standard style. Cinema, cinematography, yeah, cinematography, um, it, it, you know, in the technical way. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think visually, it's a genre that visually it, it stands out. I think, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's very good at communicating visually um, as opposed to being too script heavy I mean I, I would agree wrong, with you it's quite yeah. kind of
2: moody and there's lots of smoke in the air and yeah yeah it's it's, it's sensual without being kind of banned by the haze Code mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, no you're, you're right there, even with just kind of like assumptions probably based on kind of neo-noir and And noir now because i would assume many listeners haven't seen a 40s noir um but the motifs kind of remain throughout and are visible even in films today um so yeah but brian you're obviously a big fan of film noir so kind of what do you think of the genre what kind of like what do you think it really boils down to
3: yeah. I mean I think I think you both nailed it. I mean Joyce, for some you just said that you feel you don't know know the genre very well. You've pretty much nailed it. Cuz it to me it's all about atmosphere. You know, mm-hmm. I would say classic film noir started in the 1940s.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're say between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com.
1: Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC.
3: downbeat films Mm. they usually feature a detective as the main protagonist or the hero but very stylish edgy thrillers but they have a strange convention and this is where where you kind of nailed it with the lighting and the atmosphere and the sound you know they it was always raining wasn't it if you look look at a a classic film film, it was raining everything happened at night Yes. Nothing. Nothing seems to happen during the day. It's the day odd. over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see, see things by doing that, though. You kind of draw on the dra- natural drama of extreme weather, bad weather, thunder and lightning and rain, mm-hmm. the darkness. You know, streetlights. The, the way mm-hmm. you can make light and shade. Again, it's light and shade. is so much a feature of nineteen forties films, but particularly film noir. Mm, and yeah. I think it. It did lead to a, a very distinctive style, but I think for me, we, we kind of know what classic film noir is. We think of The Big Sleep, we think of The Morsi's Falcon, um, Double Indemnity with Barbara Stanwyck mm. and uh, Fred McMurray. Yeah, they're all obviously classic film noir movies, but yeah. it's strange really, as time's rolled on, the definition of film noir stretched so far. To mean any kind of film that's a thriller, but I think it's much more subtle than that. You know, this term neo film noir is is a really sort of fluid concept, right? Mm. the only because they're trading on the classic features of film noir. But they would talk about uh, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, as being <laughs> film noir. <laughs>
5: really? Well, wow! So,
3: well, some you look you look it up online. I was yeah. looking earlier on. You look it up online and you look for neo-film noir or films inspired by film noir. Yeah. And they will often list films that you think, "Ah, huh, really? I
2: didn't think that yeah, was film noir. I think Pulp um, Fiction is the least inspired by film noir. Yeah. You know, it's not an um, obvious
3: relation. But you, see, but you see, really, now, if you look at something like uh, LA Confidential, uh, one of my favourite films of recent years, that is plugging into film noir in mm. a big way.
5: Yeah,
3: There I see it, I get it. But I think it's it's become too much of a fluid concept and it, and it doesn't pin it down mm. enough. And I always mm. come back to films in the 1940s as a yeah. good example of what film noir is.
2: I think film noir think... is such an... Sorry, um, go ahead. No, a... Yeah, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. I think film noir is such an interesting catch-all because in the 40s, they weren't being marketed as film noir they were simply marketed as melodramas and that's what they were Mm. called. And that was the genre that people were interested in. And then in the seventies, some kind of French scholars, I believe, or either film writers decided Mm. to kind of package it up as as film noir, you know, something Mm. new. So of course you're going to have lots of films that are very different. They're not all going to have this hardball detective, but they're still going to be oddly placed within this film noir uh, genre from the 40s Um, because I think even Citizen Kane is considered a film noir and I'm not sure how much I stand on that, (laughs) but but we are. Um, But stuff like Billy Wilder's um, The Last Weekend, I think it's The Last Weekend, Um, which Mm. follows um, a weekend of an alcoholic who Mm. um, is having an awful downward spiral. I think that is even considered a film noir where I would kind of more lean towards maybe maybe double indemnity and those ones which are very much centred around um, murder, a crime and then a femme fatale who persuades or... um, helps out the detective or the hapless man yeah. for her own gain while it's raining yeah. and there's kind of characters who have very kind of dubious um, kind of good or bad morality lines. Yeah. That's maybe what I would associate more with the film noir, but you do get very kind of other inter- interpretations of the genre, which I find really, really interesting.
4: I think there's a word that's coming to mind as we're sort of talking about this, or concept rather, and that's kind of the sublime, um, because that's what joins everything that we've been kind of talking, you know, we say Tarantino, film now, what? Mm -hmm. But I think because he talks about power a lot and and that which you can't really control. Um, And, you know, the kind of the external situation almost, well, not almost, but usually overpowering you, you know, i mean the weather as we said you know the weather overpa- it overpowers you in the sense that you you can't change it um we were saying you know it's always night. the time of day is sublime overpowering mm. you know mm. um so that is it it's it's a loose connection but it is mm. a connection i suppose I, I it's and it reminds are, me of yeah. the romantic movement as well a little bit just you know the the wide artistic movement mm. so
2: of just yeah. nature and humans being so small, and then you yeah. just got nature completely un- un- encompassing you. I'm just kind of thinking of that very famous German painting. Yes, with, by oh, what is Friedrich something? <laughs> and I yeah, studied German yeah. at undergrad. Um,
4: no, I know who you mean. He, yeah. He's he's standing on the cliff, standing right? on the
2: cliff, looking yeah. at the water coming down, and it's very small man in a big world kind of thing. And I do think noir continues that um kind of vibe or that theme and definitely if you look at tarantino that way you are right it does have that feeling of little men who can who are controlled in the wider society and Uh don't really have their own personal choice especially in kind of earlier tarantino like reservoir dogs for example they're all kind of controlled by something else or society or mob rule rather than their own personal decisions and so yeah i would say that connects to 40s noir perfectly
3: yeah i think also what you've got there though is that you've got characters that are trying to get one over on the system getting one over on those that try to control our lives and say right we're gonna go our own way we're gonna do our own thing um I mean, for example, uh, Philip Marlowe, uh, the character played by Humphrey Bogart in The Big Sleep, was pretty much his own man and wanted to go his own way. Mm-hmm. He didn't, he railed against authority and made his point in his own way. He did what he had to do. And I think you do have characters like that in film noir that are going to make their point, do what they have to do, uh, and suffer the consequences mm-hmm. occasionally as well. Um, but I, I think. The point you made earlier on, though, is a really interesting one about, at the time, they didn't realise they were making film noir, because that was a term that, a collected term that came afterwards. But Mm. that's what makes filmmaking in the 1940s so cool, because they didn't know they were making classics at the time. No, they had no idea. But I think we have no idea
2: now as well.
3: Well, yeah, but you see, that's the thing, though. I mean, uh, a director like Michael Curtis, who directed Casablanca, which is... You could you could sort of cascarize this film in a while because it's Bogart again, mm. Ingrid Bergman. It seems to fit that mold, although strictly speaking it might not be. But Michael Curtis was a jobbing director. Yeah. He was being given projects to say, right, make this film. And you think, yeah. My God, he's made a film like Casablanca. And it, it's almost like they're making classics without even realizing what they're doing.
5: Yeah.
3: And um, I love that kind of that instinctive innovative approach to filmmaking and say, right, we are gonna, we want to make money, but we want to lose something that's going to last. And one thing that really strikes me about 40s movies is that these films are over 80 years old, some of them. You look at the films that are being made today. I don't feel there are any really great films or very few great films being made. There are good films being made. Mm. But will the films being made today, will they be talked about in 80 years' time?
2: Yeah, will they have that sticking power where... Yeah exactly everybody will know what citizen kane is what will they know in 80 years from this decade yeah
4: i mean i think you can count them with with one hand really um or maybe maybe with both might get to 10 but yeah (laughs) maybe there there are very very good films out there when let's not lie but yeah no i get your point and i agree
3: it's I mean, it's a matter of opinion. It's always, it's all, all about opinions. Of course yeah. it is. Yes. And and uh, all, all opinions count. But um, if you're being totally objective, I think there are fewer great films being made. But mm. back then, they were tripping over great films. Yeah. You know, and it was, I think um, it was
2: partly the strength of the scripts. Yeah. Just so precisely written. But also, because you mentioned Casablanca, which is one mm-hmm. of my favourite films, yeah, yeah. I think something that's very interesting that I've repeatedly come up with, well, come, come up in my reading um, is that a lot of the cast of Casablanca were um, European immigrants fleeing the war. Um, yeah. So you've got lots of people within the cast, like Conrad Voigt, um, who were very kind of famous in the twenties and thirties from yeah. whichever part of Europe they came to. And then they suddenly had to uproot their lives and mm. come to Hollywood. And I think a lot of 40s films, not just um, Casablanca, but the stuff by Billy Wilder as well, Mm. they do benefit from having people just all put together in Hollywood from different locations and different cultures and really Mm. trying to make great art in order to essentially survive. So I do think the the stakes are obviously higher than now. But Mm. um, I think that's always quite an interesting impact that might, kind of fly under the radar a bit
3: yeah i I think it's a really good point i mean it's not quite so obvious but i mean you know i mean uh frank capra um billy wilder they were all immigrants Mm -hmm. you
2: know
3: and they brought the european influence with them i think didn't they yeah yeah
2: you see it a lot in billy wilder's films because you've got that and i do think noir does come from kind of German expressionism because you've got that yeah. same level of intense shadow and and yeah. shade and everything. And so you can kind of see the logical kind of geographical points mm. of, oh, this is mm. where it started off and this is where it developed and everything. So that's just really interesting. And I, I find mm. how Hollywood kind of magnified everything um, in this very unusual melting pot that maybe you don't get to the same extent nowadays very very interesting
4: yeah Yeah. I think it's got to do you know we were talking about the context I think um you know the context is relevant to all art but I think to film maybe in particular and I think the the reason why these films are so great as well is because of how how responsive they are to their context Mm. I think now because we're in such a you know politically socially uh ecologically we are um we are kind of disenchanted, but we also we really don't know how to respond. Yeah. It's not a situation that you can just uh write a script about because it's it's almost too overwhelming. And I you know, I don't wanna um I don't want this to become sort of doom and gloom but in a sense you, you can respond to a war can't you you yeah, know yeah. and what comes out of it and um, the suffering the migration it's specific things that you could write about whereas today I mean I would say today there's there's a lot of nostalgia going on in films mm. you know the films that have been successful um lots of sort of coming of age which I absolutely melt with so I'm not you know th- this is not I'm not saying this in any negative sense, but yeah. I think the the context is uh, weighs a lot in these films, and as human beings, we like that. Yeah, we like to know where yeah. where something's coming from. So we
2: like to know what is reacting to what. And yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of films that are reacting to perhaps the pandemic or perhaps the global crisis, the global climate crisis, now. Yeah, um, they're more indie films. They're going to be. Flying under most people's radar, they're not going to be shown in every, mm-hmm. all the cinemas. Whereas these films that were relating directly to the war were shown everywhere, yeah, in in the cinemas up and down the country. Um, and I think a really great example of this is it's one of my favourite films is To Be or Not to Be, which is a war comedy, but mm-hmm. it was it was made in between. Um, Pearl Harbor getting attacked Mm -hmm. so the points in the in the film before they released it were initially America should really kind of get involved it's um, not morally right to stand back from the invasion of Europe by the Nazis Mm -hmm. um, and just kind of sit on your own continent and not bother and then as they were making it and before they released it the attack of Pearl Harbor happened and it's still got the same messaging that it was created with, but it's even more pertinent because you're just like, ah, oh, now America's got involved, involved, but it's not been very long. And I think that's really quite amazing and quite interesting. And I don't think I've seen something where I'm just like, ah, oh, halfway through something massive happened. Something yeah. massively political happened that shifted Is- the, the way it's going to be perceived.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: yeah but, I, th- I think, yeah, yeah. sorry, I, I think you realise how powerful films can be, though, you know, that yes. a film can be a snapshot of what's happening in society at any given point in time, and it is it is like a mirror, uh, but films made during the war years were particularly powerful,
5: mm.
3: and, and it was a morale booster, but as you say, something like to be or not to be, kind of landed at a, a crucial time mm. uh, which kind of made people see things in a different light um, particularly in America where, where there was um, a predominantly kind of isolationist view yeah, that yeah. we shouldn't get involved and then as you say Pearl Harbor happened and everything changed yeah. and filmmaking became a major tool a propaganda sort of which which is logical you would use it that way
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, but I think some great films were made off the back of that and yeah
2: exactly to be or not,
3: to be was to be or not to be was one of them
2: yeah and while we're on the topic of war films why don't we kind of imaginary fly over to the UK because during yeah. the 40s there were some great kind of propaganda films but also at the end of the decade you've got kind of Pressburger and Powell, i.e. The the Archers, as they were called in their films, making some great films like A Matter of Life and Death and The Red Shoes, which they have really, really remained iconic. So um, I was just wondering if we had any particular thoughts about how Britain and the British kind of 40s film industry differed from America. Um, Brian, do you have any thoughts?
3: Well, I think the, at the time, I mean, Hollywood was, ev- was everything, and to a certain extent, it is now. But back then, we often forget that there was a, a thriving British film industry. I mean, Rank made some wonderful films. Mm-hmm. Ealing Ealing films started during during the war years. Uh, but I think when it when it came to morale boosting, uh, British movies. There's so many to choose from there. I mean, one I would pick out just to start with is in which we serve, yeah, uh, which was um, which starred Noel Coward, Richard Attenborough, um, and was edited by David Lean, but I think he was really the director, to be honest. Um, but it it just portrayed a very simple story of the human cost of war, the impacts on families, incredibly moving. Um, uh, Noel Coward was was a great writer, but not a great actor.
5: Mm.
3: Um, and I think it really showed in this film, but it almost didn't matter in some ways because it was more about the way they could uh, show uh, the look of fear in somebody's eyes.
5: Yeah. You know,
3: there were scenes in the film where they were hanging onto the wreckage of a ship that had just sunk, and planes were going overhead and, and firing at them. And that genuine look of fear and concern are we going to survive this? It was quite graphic in some ways.
2: Yeah. And there's, um, it's very reliant on flashback, but yeah. you really do fear that they're not going to get back home because essentially what happens, their um, ship gets bombed by in, in Greece or somewhere, somewhere in yeah. Grecian waters. And um, they all think that they're not going to get back. And it's all about, it's full of propaganda of course but it's all very kind of we've got to hang on we've got to do it for the boys that kind of thing um yeah and it's great yeah but through flashbacks, it's it's really
3: good it's very it's very stiff upper lip isn't it it's very Mm. british you know you've got you've got to be brave tough it all out and which is nothing wrong with that at all, but you know we might look at look at that in retrospect and say it's a bit corny, but it's not yeah. because the message is still so strong there. I mean, and,
2: I think there's a scene. Sorry, I think there's a scene in there where there's a pregnant woman and she's refusing to leave the house that's going to get bombed, and um, yeah. they sh- they the the mother and the grandmother I think um, shove her into a broom cupboard or something, yeah. and she's desperate <laughs> not to leave the house because the bombing they're kind of oh well the bombing will pass over it's not going to affect us very british and very kind of stiff upper lip you know no no emotions here and it's brilliant it's
4: really good yeah nothing's going on and anyway i'll die here if i do yeah (laughs)
3: so i love that sense of bloody mindedness though it's typical british no we're gonna do it our our way Uh, but also great cast i mean john mills bernard miles
2: and Celia Johnson. Johnson,
3: yeah,
2: yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a great film. Joyce, do you have any particular kind of British favourites? I know you mentioned A Matter of Life and Death. I was yes,
4: yeah. uh, talk about great performances and great cast. Oh um, my gosh, yes, yes. <laughs> I I really love that. I think I I love watching films. Uh, mm-hmm. It may come as no surprise, um, but I rarely see what you know. I I and I've enjoyed lots of them, but I think there is. Uh, a particular aspect to the many ways in which you can enjoy a film which is it it absolutely transports you Mm. um it's it's just you know it it's otherworldly I think might be the word um Mm. and you know this film it's it it's a war film uh but it shows you the it shows you a different side of war it's it's kind of um an aftermath and, and not in an obvious way. I, I don't want to spoil it in case anyone... So it, it's quite hard to talk about it without spoiling it. But um, it's romantic. It's yeah. essentially a love story. Yeah. Uh, wonderful settings, I think. Um, the performances are... I mean just
2: they're they're exquisite and i mean david niven is brilliant yes
4: <laughs> and brilliant. you know mario he, he's incredible like his eyes are so expressive <laughs> yeah. um, and you know mario scoring as the frenchman oh my god it's you know pure theater mm-hmm. um and i think it's uh is it roger Livesy as dr frank yeah it's i think it is um, yeah yeah i mean his voice i just didn't want to stop listening to it for some reason um it's just beautiful film i loved Mm. it
2: i i think a matter of life and death is absolutely fabulous um and essentially um at the very beginning a young airman played by david niven is meant to die but in but the angels lose his paperwork and don't take his soul to heaven So then he falls in love with an American radio operator who was on the other end of the line when he was saying, my plane's going down over the channel. Um, And then the rest of the film is convincing heaven to let him stay. And it's just so brilliant. I think you can definitely see it in Pixar's latest Soul, which Uh a matter of life and death soul, a matter of life and death is so much better show that one to your kids don't, don't bother with soul I'm sorry yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah oh but it's just so good and also just this real blending of fantasy the afterlife yeah, and it's dreamy it's so dreamy especially with that choice to make the real world full in technicolor which in the, in the 40s black and white was seen as realist So that's so fascinating that the real world is so bright and so colourful. You've got the beautiful reds of the flowers and it's just such a deep and beautifully, richly coloured world. And then you go to heaven and it's black and white and very stark with the staircase going up to heaven. And it's just a visionary treat. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Like, I mean, Kim, um, Devin, even Kim Hunter as well. Um, mm. they make such a nice couple. I mean, she's brilliant in it. She's absolutely brilliant from from mm. the first scene where you know she's kind of de- dealing with the situation of the airplane and trying to get contact. Uh, sh- she's incredible. I mean, so 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 expressive. So. Yeah, it's a really nice Uh, film, and it had to be paperwork gone wrong.
3: So, how British is that? (laughs) Yeah,
4: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: (laughs) It's nothing else, just paperwork bureaucracy. Exactly.
3: I I, I think it's difficult to fault the film really Mm -hmm. because it just ticks all the boxes. Mm. It's it's just a brilliant piece of work. And also, I think what gives it more impact is that David Niven was actually a war veteran. He served during the war. He was in military intelligence. He's led mm-hmm. troops in battle. Now, filming a scene like that where he's, he's in the cockpit and he's talking to this girl on the ground, June, right, and his parachutes uh, ruined. He can't get out. He knows he's going to die. You know, how many times would that have gone through his mind when he was in combat himself? Mm-hmm.
4: Yes, you know,
3: yeah. So he's got his own experiences to draw on there, um, but it—you think that's almost, almost in some mm. ways, it's not acting. Again, it's back to a very naturalistic yeah. portrayal of yeah. what someone, how someone would feel when they know they're going to die, um, and it's beautiful. It, it's mm. just a beautiful, almost poetic. It's, it's poetry on screen, I
2: think it is, Yeah.
3: And also, I think that. Uh, the way they go for an extreme close-up, uh, and they, they are, you know, Kim Hansa, David Liven, both very good-looking people, very photogenic. Yeah. Uh, and it's not—it's almost impossible not to make them look good. On mm. screen. Um, but it, But it's a wonderful film, and it's moving, and it's haunting. You just get a shiver when you watch it. Uh, oh, I think it's it,
2: absolutely fabulous. It's just yeah. so good.
3: And also, again, the the timing of the film, of the release in 1946, when the war had just ended and people were feeling the cost of war, having almost certainly would have lost some. every family lost somebody during the war.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And it must have touched an incredible, it's like we were saying earlier, it, it must have touched an incredibly raw nerve. Uh, but aren't we glad that it's there because mm. it is just a work of art. Oh it's, it's beautiful.
2: It's it's absolutely just breathtaking. Part just everything in that film is an excellent film choice. Yeah. yeah. But then yeah. you watch something like The Red Shoes, um, and I don't know if you've seen The Red Shoes or not, which follows a ballerina. Um, it was made in 49, I think, 48. Um, and it's as she kind of rises the ranks and becomes the prima ballerina and she just becomes obsessed with this idea of art and creating the perfect ballet and becoming the perfect dancer but that's also by um Powell and Pressburger and the Archers which is their alternative name sometimes you'll find they're called um Powell and Pressburger and sometimes they want to call Mm. themselves the Archers um it's such a good film and I love the reliance on this fantasy world of like dream and you see it in um, A Matter of Life and Death and you see it in The Red Shoes as well but that's mm-hmm. definitely it, such a great film too.
3: <laughs> yeah, it is. It's wonderful. That's with Morishira I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Incredible film but again there's there's an emphasis on visuals isn't there? Mm. Stunning visuals. That film must have been amazing to watch on a big screen as well. The I
2: would love to see either that or A Matter of Life and Death on a kind of big screen in the cinema just because the technicolor is so crisp Mm. and particularly in the red shoes, there's something like a half an hour, maybe 25 minute, half an hour dance scene, which is just a ballet. So you watch the entire ballet within the film and it's so expressionist and so delightful and brightly colored. And I watched it on a tiny laptop screen and I just imagine if you watched it all in like it's absolutely encompassed by the cinema in a cinema chair with it being pitch black and you just see the cinema screen i just imagine yeah. that would be such an amazing experience and i think, and I, think I would I love them yeah. to bring back 1940s films or 50s yeah. films and just show the, them you know
3: on a IMAX. can you imagine on a ramax Max? That, well? oh,
2: wow. that would be amazing <laughs> i would i would pay a lot of money i'd be just Absol- <laughs> just take it Absol-
3: yeah, I'm surprised it's not been done. Mm. I mean, I'm sure somebody somewhere is look at, looking at the uh, ways of bringing bringing people back after uh, lockdown finishes. But um, incredible films.
2: Well, if I mean, there's any all... programmers listening, like film programmers, um, you'll yeah. get me in by um, putting the red shoes on. That's that's how you'll do yeah. it. <laughs> they've
3: they've they've been put on notice, haven't they, Lucy? They yeah, yeah. Them. No, it's up to them. They've got to sort it out for us, haven't they?
2: Exactly. They've got to figure it out.
3: Yeah, definitely.
2: What I'm also struck by is a lot in in British films that because there was men away from Britain while they were making a lot of films, there were lots of melodramas being made. And I found one the other day called uh, Madonna and the Seven Moons, which is absolutely mad. It's just... It's, it's, it's obviously a very kind of pulp fiction and not pulp fiction as in the Tarantino film, but just kind of hot off the press romantic kind of not drivel per se. It's actually quite good. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's just such a weird plot because um, you have a woman who has um, she's two different. She's got two different personalities, essentially, and one of them is a meek um well-behaved wife and the other one is a um a thief a jewelry thief oh, yeah! and like... it's just so bizarre but really really entertaining and that was basically they found their audience in all these women who didn't have much else to do apart from go to the factory and you know come home and everything because it their kids a... and their wife and yeah. their husbands were away and it's just so it
3: struck it a... yeah struck a chord with them didn't it yeah yeah yeah. and it was
2: what they wanted to see was just mad melodramas and it's fabulous but it's also very weird and if you're not into melodramas it can be very dated because you're just thinking hmm why are they all running into each other precisely at the 90 minute mark why are they all why are they all in this one city um but it just came to my attention that there's just so many kind of hidden films that aren't famous now, but they're still rather good if you find them. And if you're kind of looking through kind of what's, what's there and everything. Um, Have you guys found any kind of hidden films from the forties that maybe no one's really talked about, but then you've watched them and you've you've thought, actually, why is nobody writing articles about this or yeah. talking about this or anything?
3: I think, I think there are a fair number of films that fall into that category, mm. Lucy. Uh, particularly British films as well, because they, they do kind yeah. of get lost a little bit. Yeah. And I think they rely on t- on TV, the small screen, to sort of give them a showcase. And one particular film that springs to mind, uh, Waterloo Road, uh, which was made just at the end of the war uh, with John Mills and Stuart Granger. Uh, As this um, wonderful cast, and it's basically a soldier coming back from the war, and suspecting that his wife has been seeing another man, mm. who happens to be the local spiv, the draft dodger, played by Stuart Granger. Uh-huh. Um, nice setup, nice straightforward premise, right? And also portrays a real situation. You know, what did some people get up to when? their men were away at war. Again, it's not moralising, it's just putting forward a simple scenario mm. that may well have happened yeah. where people are separated by the war. Um, very good film, uh, well acted, Stuart Granger, it's great value as the spoof, um, and John Mills, being John Mills, you know, mm. he, he's just, he was just very good value for, mu- for money in, in that way. Um, it's a film that works really well. Very gritty, yeah. down to earth, uh, for a film of that period, but doesn't really get much airplay doesn't really get seen very often. It was the type of film, you know, one of the reasons I love 1940s movies is that. I was raised on those films mm. you know when I was a kid growing up on a Sunday afternoon when the football finished my dad would switch over to BBC 2 or BBC 1 mm-hmm. and there'd be a film mm. on like Waterloo Road yeah and you don't see them quite as often I don't think anymore. they
2: get the same amount of airtime anymore mm. um which is a real shame um because I um can I'm I'm studying my master's at the moment, so I can get access to this service called Bob, which is essentially a lot of recorded um, TV and film, whatever was on BBC essentially for the past fifty years, whatever. Uh-huh. And I notice that you find a lot of '40s films from maybe 2000 and 2006 and yeah and and earlier. But now, you know, 2019, people, it's maybe not really the thing that's particularly on TV, even though there will be lots of people who remember watching them either at the cinema when they first came out or like yourself and when they were on BBC2 for the the third or the fourth time, you know. So I just find it unusual that maybe there's less of them apart from, say, Casablanca and the kind of really kind of famous ones, maybe even like Sunset yeah. Boulevard, which I think is from 50. But yeah. so, it, it's a yeah, shame I that they're they, not it, so obviously shown. Yeah.
3: Actually, I've just I've just noticed whilst we were chatting, Waterloo Road is actually on YouTube. Oh, you right. See,
2: on,
3: U- see on YouTube. Well,
2: okay, <laughs> okay onto my watch list. And... Yeah, yeah. Well, it on your
3: watch list. Have a look at it. Let me know what you think. Yeah, yeah, um,
2: it does sound... Kind of like a precursor to a British kitchen sink drama. Yeah, kind of. I think it does. <laughs> yeah. The before yeah. um, Saturday night, Sunday morning, that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you've you pretty much nailed it. Um, oh, I'll go watch yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, watch it. Tell me what you think about it. We can have another podcast on it, can't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah.
2: The the, <laughs> the, the, the the return and it's just the return, on the road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we're just kind of slowly coming to a close now, but. I'll just end by kind of asking, you know, maybe what what are your films that are really your favorites from the 40s? What's kind of really stands out and you know, if you had to stop somebody on the street and they they were just said, "Oh, I'm a film fan." and you were thinking, "Right, I've got to recommend them one film from the 1940s. Which one would it be?" Um, Joyce, do you have any kind of particular film that's swimming around your mind that you're just like, "This is the one that's that's my favorite?" Um,
4: it's sort of well it's from 1939 so let you know what's
2: the extra year <laughs> yeah
4: it it's not quite a hidden gem or anything it's the lady vanishes uh-huh. um oh, I like because that. of yeah. because of how atmospheric it, i mean the whole sequence on the train and her headache you can and, and the noise is just so i mean just that that's what film is basically mm. um so yeah, that's is a that very very good an one. an Alfred Hitchcock film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's a, the last one that he did in Britain before he became big in Hollywood or something. Oh. So that's why it's um quite well known as well. It's it's yeah. a great one.
2: I will definitely put that onto my to be watched list, which is growing <laughs> extremely long and kind it,
3: of it, never ending now. It's a, <laughs> it is a really Joyce I agree it's a really good film and it's it's a film Made with a lot of humour as well. Yes, it's it's quite funny in places, and it really shows what a great. I think it was Michael Redgrave and Margaret Lockwood Mm -hmm. in *The Blue Drops*. But a lot of humour there, very, very funny and very sort of bright and clever in the way it's played. So yeah, I totally agree with that one. That's a really good film. Yeah.
2: Um. So Brian, do you have what is your kind of personal favourite, or like the one that you would just kind of? you
3: know wow got to watch there's so, there's <laughs> so, yeah there's so many um I think it would have to be something from film noir the classic mm. film noir period and I think I'd fall back on something with Bogart in yeah I think I would uh-huh. either go for the Maltese Falcon um directed by John Huston. Um, it's got Peter Laurie in as well. Peter Laurie is one of the greatest villains ever to have lived yeah. in the movies. <laughs> he's got these these weird staring eyes and a very strange high-pitched voice as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he always acts like he's being misunderstood and put upon and he's not really. He's the mastermind kind of thing. Um, that's a fantastic film. Mm. And also, again, on you can tell I'm a Bogart fan, can't you? But um, the first Bogart and Bacall movie, To Have and to Have Not, which was based on the Dashiell Hammett story, uh, which is just unbelievable. And you can see the the, the sizzling on the screen chemistry between Bogart and Bacall because their relationship was just starting as well.
2: Wow, For yeah. For real.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, another great film. But how can, how can you choose? It's so Exactly. Difficult.
2: There's so many that are just great. But I think you've really like hit the nail on the head of if you want to you know start with some great 1940s noir follow your suggestions and i think those are some great ones but for my personal choice i'm going to kind of hop over to france and um Mm -hmm. my favorite is um la belle libette which is beauty and the beast by i think it's jean Cocteau. Oh, I'm not sure. But it's a kind of live action and it's far better than the Disney version. I'm I'm sorry to any Disney purists who are listening. <laughs> um but it's I think it's 16th century, Beauty and the Beast, and it's very kind of straightly told from the fairy tale, but it's so richly enchanting. So of course you've got Beauty who has to go and live in the Beast's Castle, but as she's walking through the hallways. The candlesticks are held up by real hands and lots of bits in the castle are just people. So instead of just having enchanted candlesticks, it takes this really quite macabre and haunting film that also just looks amazing, but it adds another layer of the classic Beauty and Beast, Beauty and the Beast kind of film. And I would say to anybody who's unsure with the 1940s and thinking, oh, this is far too old, This is far too um, bygone age. It's not what I'm interested in. I want fast-paced. I want now. If you want magic and you want to be kind of transported, I would definitely say try Beauty and the Beast, but not the 1996 Uh, one or 1993.
3: Yeah, well, well love the story. I've not seen that version, but it sounds great. You've sold mm. it to me loosely. It's very yeah, difficult
2: so. to find. That's the only thing. I think BFI have a DVD and I rented it when I saw it. Um, but it is magical. It is just, it just takes your breath away and you can't believe almost how beautiful it is, which sounds very trite, but it's such a beautiful, beautiful film and quite different from the films that we've been discussing Um, earlier on so I thought we should I should bring kind of notice to it as well
4: Mm.
2: great well I think that might bring to the end our our lovely podcast I think I've had such a lovely time this um, evening recording this and kind of talking about 40s films as well so um, I think maybe it's time to sign off and um, say goodbye for (laughs) for now Um, but thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed um, hearing all about these 1940s films and maybe we've piqued your interest with films that you haven't heard about before or maybe you're a massive 1940s fan but anyway thank you for listening to the UK Film Review podcast you can follow us on Spotify or you can and you can also find us on the website ukfilmreview.co.uk um thank you very much for listening and um goodbye (laughs) Bye. bye 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 bye